Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by Ryan Selkis, who's been in crypto for just about as long as anybody's been in crypto. Currently, he is the founder and CEO of Masari, which is an absolute behemoth when it comes to all things crypto, like analytics, research, visualizations, a newsletter. It's just been fascinating to watch you build the business over the years. Ryan, how are you doing? Doing great. Good to be here, and thanks for the invite. Yeah, of course. I think we got to know each other first when we were both sort of writing about Ripple and XRP. Uh, as I recall, we both went on Laura Shin's podcast. Um, so to, to give listeners just a, a little backstory, Ripple is a crypto firm that's trying to uh, replace the correspondent banking system. Uh, they have a, a, a cryptocurrency called XRP, which they want to use as the rails for when a corporation that might have operations in Japan and Europe and the US needs yen and dollars and euros. So their pitch has been that XRP is going to replace those rails and that all the major banks are just a second away from you know, adopting it. So as a reporter at Bloomberg, I started looking into that and I talked to all the banks I could and, and heard basically across the board that none of them were about to, to dump the dollar for XRP. And so I wrote some stories to that effect, uh, which did not make me very popular among the XRP army, which is what their supporters are, are known as. Um, and while I think you and I agree that, that Ripple, it's a, it's a good idea, we, I think we disagree with the way that they've gone about it in like pitching it to retail investors. Uh, so did, did I describe that accurately about, about your stance on, on Ripple? Yeah, I mean, my stance hasn't really changed. Um, I think this conversation uh, is almost four years ago uh, that, that we had that uh, with Laura. So, you know, I, I um, since then the the SEC has filed a lawsuit against Ripple uh, for securities law violations, and um, I actually disagree with the SEC and, and rooting for Ripple in, in this particular case. It's, it's pretty nuanced, but. Um, Essentially, I think the problem is really with the way that we define crypto assets, uh, and it's a policy um, shortcoming right now, versus a you know existing securities law issue, right? So I think I think Ripple, um, their XRP currency, is a currency, but the way that they've touted its value and its potential has been at odds with what they said behind closed doors. So it's essentially become a cash machine for them. To you know, enrich the company, enrich the founders and its sh- uh, and, and the shareholders, um, but you know, at the expense of, uh, of of pretty significant underperformance from a um, an end user and, and end investor standpoint. So it's um, I think it's uh, the way that it was executed versus the um, securitiesness of, uh, of 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 the asset itself, which is what they've gotten into hot water around more recently. So yeah. 
Um, but the Paul CEO there is uh, Brad Garlinghouse. And I laughed when I was reading your 2022 thesis on the crypto market that you and Brad don't exactly exchange Christmas cards. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I actually got one from Brad. Uh, it, it was a bag of shit delivered to my front doorstep. So. <laughs> be surprised. Yeah. Well, I have a ton of things I want to talk to you about, but first I'd love to know where you came from and how you got here. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up uh, in the Northeast, went to school at Boston College and um, started my career out in, um, in Boston. Um, was, uh, was a first in, in venture capital and ended up starting my first company at 25. A uh, bunch of reasons that didn't work out, but I was in between going to business school or you know, figuring out what I wanted to do next. And that, that happens to be when I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole in, in mid-2013. So ended up spending uh, a long weekend, which turned into a week, which turned into a month, uh, kind of going deep on it and, and decided, you know, I wasn't going to do business school. I was, I was going to try to stick around and build and figure out how I could be useful. And um, we, we will definitely get onto that. But what, what were you like as a kid? Were you into sports? Uh, wh what did your parents do? And what was your what was it like a, a life as a kid for Ryan Salkis? Uh, so, you know, I, I think I was really uh, ahead of the curve uh, academically, especially when I was little. Um, I'm an only child, so I read a lot um, kind of growing up. I mean, I had, I had a bunch of friends, but... Um, it wasn't like I was uh, uh, outcast or, or, you know, just kind of up in my room all the time reading or antisocial. But um, I think there was kind of like age zero through 12, where I was a voracious reader. And then, you know, probably 12 to 24, uh, when I you know, essentially stopped reading, played sports, you know, kind of messed around and um, uh, you know, decided to prioritize having fun and, and kind of getting by on the, the first 12 years of investment um, that, I'd, uh, that I'd made. Um, so I've always been, uh, I've always been pretty curious, but I was definitely like, you know, after, you know, age 12, uh, basically no video games, all sports um, and, uh, and athletics. And you uh, uh, so it's basketball, football, and baseball. Um, I only played football one year, uh, my, my senior year, because I never wanted to have an injury before the basketball season. Um, but, um, you know, I ended up playing my senior year because I knew I wasn't, I was probably not going to play college ball, which I ended up not playing college ball. Um, I'm, I'm quote unquote only six, five. So the, the schools that I was looking at, you know, that was, I would have had to be a, a point guard or shooting guard, I think. Um, and, um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I um, uh, had, you know, just, uh, good, you know, solid kind of family and, and upbringing, Not, nothing, nothing too, uh, too interesting or, or spectacular to kind of talk about, you know, kind of early on. Um, and, uh, you know, had, uh, the opportunity to go out to Boston college, uh, good four years there to create school. Uh, and there's actually some, some, uh, there's a sneaky number of, uh, BC alumni that are, are kind of floating around crypto. CMS, uh, Dan Matuszewski is, uh, is, is one of them. So um, there's definitely a handful of us floating around. Yeah. Um, did you work jobs in high school? Uh, I did. I don't really talk too much about my 
my my childhood and, and and kind of earlier years though, because then then there's like all sorts of opsec issues. So that, that's why I'm starting to smile a little bit and be a little bit cagey. But um, yeah, I was I, from from the age of like 14, I worked. So I just for um, some reason I figured uh, I, you probably had it, some really fun high school jobs. Um, yeah, well, I actually so I'll skip over everything like pre age 18, and instead, um, I think one of my favorite jobs in college was actually so I was a, a mover in college. Um, and, you know, just basically just in the 90 degree heat, like getting people you know, in, in their uh, dorm rooms. And that was like 18 hour days, you know, 20 hour days, like manual labor, but we got paid a small fortune and it was, it was, it was great. Um, and you know, a good group of guys. And then that same group, um, ended up, uh, cause they're, you know, a year and two years older, they ended up, uh, hooking me up with a, um, a job as a late night janitor at our, um, uh, at our sports complex, right? So the basketball course and, and weight room and everything. And that sounds like a pretty shitty job, but um, it it actually was amazing because I had lobbied our boss to pay us by the shift, right? Um, because, you know, we were supposed to do it in four hours and we figured, you know, they're just a lot, like a lot of messing around. We can do this in two and a half. And so we settled on like, you know, three and he was going to up our rate or whatever, you know, so so we weren't like negotiating against ourselves. So we kind of notched a win. And then... Um, it would take us two hours to actually do it. Like once we negotiated that. And so we had an hour plus we got to like lock up the gym afterwards. And, you know, it got to the point where we would like invite some of our friends in for like, you know, late night basketball and yeah. you know, like, like just literally have the court all to ourselves at like 1am and um, have like different like tournaments with our friends and whatnot. Um, and it, yeah, so that was awesome. So we got paid, you know, really good hourly rate. We got to play basketball for one out of three hours and then, you know, we got to sneak all of our friends in once we decided we didn't care if we got fired because we were, you know, we're like, you know, yeah, that's great. Uh, senior year and, and, and pretty well set with jobs after that. So, um, so there's a lesson there, which is uh, the dirty jobs pay well and you can get away with a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And being efficient is always really great. I've had jobs where um, same thing, I could get the work done in an hour and then I'd have three or four hours to just kind of do whatever. Um, so coming out of college, um, did you, where were you headed? Was it finance related or what, what was interesting to you at that point in your life? Yeah, I went, uh, so one of the reasons I went to BC, uh, there's a really good undergraduate business school. Um, it's actually, you know, it's consistently like one of the top um, five undergraduate business schools uh, in, in the country. So it's, um, I, I was always kind of like drawn to that um, because, you know, both of my grandfathers were, were entrepreneurs and, you know, kind of like family businesses in, in the, uh, on, on either side. And um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to do something in, you know, business. It was, it, it's multifunctional, right? It, you know, that kind of jack of all trades type of skill set. And um, uh, it was just, you know, interesting to me because you, you basically create something from scratch or you, manage your own hours. And, and, you know, of course that's like a little bit of a false choice because the, the, the quip around like entrepreneurship is, you know, I work, uh, I work 60 hours a week for myself or 80 hours a week for myself. So I don't have to work 40 for someone else, you know? Um, and, um, but I, I wanted to have that skill set, And so, uh, I went for the hardest job available for finance, which is investment banking. Um, and that's another interesting story where, uh, it was actually um, right around, it might've been my birthday. It was right around my birthday when um, 
I, uh, I was an alternate for one of the last interview slots at JP Morgan and one person no showed their interview. So I was like literally clicking refresh every like five seconds at you know, 6.30 AM or 7 AM when, when the alternate slots open up. I ended up getting one of the last alternate slots, uh, crushed the interview, and then was you know, one of the two people you know, from, from BC that got a, a, an internship at JP Morgan that summer. So uh, again, hang, like one click of the refresh button kind of changed change the tra uh, trajectory. Um, I hated investment banking. Um, the summer was miserable. Uh, and of course I signed on the spot because they offered you a fat bonus and I just wanted to coast senior year. Um, and I figured, you know, I can deal with two years of pain, but right before the financial crisis, uh, hit and kind of full force, uh, that fall of 2008, I graduated spring of 08 and, and about two, three weeks before I was supposed to start, I got a call from HR, JP Morgan, um, JP Morgan had just acquired Bear Stearns. So I was a synergy. Uh, and, and my, uh, they didn't fire me, uh, but my offer was deferred for a year and they're going to put me in a different division to chase. So, um, fortunately, uh, I hadn't really fired any of the bullets that I had, you know, in terms of like social capital the fall prior, cause I'd signed on the spot. So I went back to the same friends that had like reached out and said, Hey, we got to get you in here and like, you know, come, come meet with our team. You know, the folks that were like a year or two ahead of me in school. And, um, you know, I was, I was on family vacation. I remember I was in San Francisco. So, you know, like the wine, the wine bar cocktail hours. And I told my, uh, my parents, I gotta go make a couple calls. Something just happened at work. It's fine. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me skeptically. And then I was like, okay, it's not fine. And I took like literally like four glasses of wine and I went upstairs to the hotel room and then um, made a few calls and ended up, you know, getting fast tracked for an interview at a venture capital firm called Summit. Um, same thing had happened with like the internship interview, right? There just happened to be one slot open at the last minute. And um, I, uh, I, I did well in the interview and kind of got fast tracked and went from uh, the, the valley of despair, uh, what's going to happen to the start of my career to basically skipping a couple of years of, uh, of, of banking, which you know is usually a prereq to get into to VC. Yeah. What did you I, had no, I had no right getting that job either. Uh, the, the only reason I got that job is because I had a couple much smarter friends than me um, that uh, that kind of pulled me through. But uh, it was it was interesting to watch me go from a Neanderthal to a functioning professional in three years uh, after a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from my first boss. Did you um, have any inkling of the financial crisis to come as being you know kind of inside J.P. Morgan then, or what? What was what do you remember about that? Uh, not necessarily. I remember there was one, um, there was one day over the summer where this is summer 2007 and a couple of the big Bear Stearns hedge funds. Yeah. Like, that's what started overnight. Do you, do you remember that? Right. And yeah. then it was kind of a slow bleed from there, but that was like the summer of 07. Those, those couple of hedge funds blew up and, um, and that really basically just chilled the, um, leverage buyout market on the spot. Cause like LBOs were, were getting, you know, um, back that, you know, that summer, those couple of years, LBOs were just like coming into their heyday and it was, it was getting crazy. It was like six, seven times, you know, debt multiples that, that these private equity firms were coming in and, and basically like raising these companies and, um, and just completely crippling them. But, um, I remember it because we had our, uh, LBO Excel model training the next day. And the senior analyst that was supposed to do the training comes in like 10 minutes late. He's all disheveled, 
clearly like crazy hungover. Um, and, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, like these guys just basically realized in the middle of summer after like 120 hour weeks that their bonuses were like had literally just evaporated the day before for something that wasn't even going to hit for like another five months. But you just like look at the state of the world and you're like, okay, we just spent like 120 hour weeks for the last seven months. And we're going to have to do this for another five and our bonuses are probably no longer there. And I remember he sits down and, you know, he opens laptop and he's like, all right, we're going to, you know, talk about, and then, you know, he, he kind of goes through his preamble and then he just trails off and he's like, you're not going to need to know how to build these fucking things this summer. And he walks out of the room <laughs> and all of us, like there's a bunch of like 20 year olds and like you know, 21 year olds are just like, uh, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I always remember that it was. It was. You know, one of the, one of the spots that that kind of sticks with you from that summer. But um, yeah, I remember. I think when Bear Stearns originally sold to J.P. Morgan, it was like a two at two dollars a share, and I I think I, that got redone. But I think I remember somebody went down to the Bear Stearns office in Wall Street where Bloomberg was near there, and they taped a two dollar bill to the door, the front door. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so did going through that crisis, like did, did a lot of people felt like kind of freaked out that they were going to be, you know, in a depression for the next like 10 years when, when the enormity of that hit, did you feel that way or how did that change your trajectory and what you thought you could do and what you wanted to do? Um, well, I mean, I, I think you obviously learn a lot from stuff for, like, like that. There's a couple of things that stood out. Like one, when JP Morgan acquired Bear Stearns, I was like, our jobs are no longer safe this summer. I remember thinking that in like the March timeframe. And then of course it took them until like June, like late June, right before we were supposed to start, which was horrible. And I remember getting calls from a bunch of my friends that, you know, had, had kind of experienced something similar and, and, you know, they, they also had their offers deferred and they, everybody was calling each other. Yeah. And, and my reaction was basically like, why are you so surprised? <laughs> like, I, I was like, I, I remember being like a little bit pissed that like I was getting all these calls from like my friends over the summer. And I'm like, how could you not even foresee this was a possibility? The fact that you could not foresee this was a possibility makes me think that your offer should have been deferred and mine shouldn't. Cause like, I knew that this was a possibility cause this is how like the world works. Um, but uh, you know, I, I kept in touch with, with several of them and, and, and they're all obviously doing well, you know, uh, regardless of that, that minor hiccup. Um, you know, one other thing, um, that you know, kind of solidified for me um, is it, it sounds really trite, but people can't really understand how scary like bear markets are until they've lived through them. Like we we get conditioned in crypto to just experience the most painful, like soul crushing gut-wrenching bear markets. And and some of us have done it multiple times. So like, you know, for me product of 08, got into Bitcoin at the top in 2013, wrote it all the way down, you know, and through mid 2015, right? Um, then did the same thing all over again in 2018. So I've, I've had three of these just massive, massive downturns. Um, and I would actually say I kind of had a fourth in between because I more or less blew through all my venture capital savings when I started my first company because I bootstrapped it for, for like a year and a half. Um, so I've, I've basically had like four, <laughs> basically four resets. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's scar tissue 
and then there's like rings on a tree of scar <laughs> tissue, yeah. uh, which is which is what I feel like uh, you know I've I established. And and you know, frankly, I mean, I that's that's invaluable, right? I'm I'm 36, and I feel like I have the the battle scars that you know a lot of people in their 50s don't have, right? Yeah, so it, it definitely steals you. Yeah. I remember. <clears throat> Congress was voting on like a TARP kind of relief package, uh, you know, after everything had just completely crashed in the fall of 08. It, the bill didn't pass and the, the S&P just fell out of bed. It's just like the, the line down on the Bloomberg terminal was terrifying. And mm -hmm. everybody was just really kind of like, holy shit, nobody's seen this in their lifetime before. And uh, mm -hmm. I'll never forget that day at the office. The other thing I learned. The other thing I learned is that it's good to have cash. <laughs> you know, I, and I didn't have that much. Just kind of graduating from college, but I remember um, when the bottom fell out. You know, we were looking at stocks. Some of you know, some of like the twenty-two-year-old analysts, and everybody's terrified, right? And we don't know what the hell's going on. Like, is our firm going to be okay? You know, are our jobs safe even? And, and fortunately, like you know, venture is much more stable and resilient than. Um, than some of the big banks because you know private partnerships and whatnot, but um, and those those fees are pretty steady. Um, but you know, I remember buying Apple stock for like one and a half times their cash balance. Wow. This was like right after they'd unveiled the iPhone the year before, right? So like this was a, a freaking rocket ship of a company. You know, now it seems so obvious in hindsight, but I remember, you know, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's just say I bought it at like seventy. But like one and a half times cash in the fall of like 2008. And I felt really good because it went up like 30, 40%. And I sold it. And I'm like, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't sell your winners when like the thesis is still intact. And also, you know, think, think beyond um, uh, a trading time. For, so I think there was some stuff that happened there. And also like early on for me for uh, with crypto that more or less established that I am a horrible trader. Um, but I'm a pretty good long-term investor. So um, I think that's been good too, to just buy, hold, you know, take some off the table when, when you see these kind of massive. Yeah, it's, it's a great table. lesson for crypto yeah. people. What, who's the investor that says when the, when there's blood in the streets, that's when you buy, was that Buffett? That's one of the Rothschild. I think that was the Rothschilds. And, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. When there's blood in the street, buy even when it's your own. Yeah. I think that was, I think that was them. And then, you know, Buffett and Munger have a, a bunch of quips too, but how did you first come across Bitcoin? I first learned about it in 2011 during the debt sequester. Uh, do you remember that? It was so. This was like the first big, um, not the first, but certainly like I would say I would argue that's like one of the beginnings of the breakdown in like partisan politics um, in terms of like functioning governance because. 2011, it was like the late summer, early fall. They couldn't agree on a budget. And instead they had to keep passing these like continuing resolutions. And finally they realized it was ridiculous, right? Yeah. And agreed, okay, if we can't come to an agreement, we're gonna have across the board budget cuts. That's gonna impact defense, all the social welfare programs, blah, 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 right? Um, just cover to cover. Same line item just gets slashed like 15, 18%, whatever it was. Um, and then, of course, they kicked that, too. And when they basically blew through their own deadline and did not hold themselves accountable or, you know, on passing a budget, agreeing to some compromise or sticking to like the poison pill of like debt uh, or uh, sequestration, the um, S&P downgraded the U.S. debt for the first time ever. 
Yeah, so that was huge. That was, that was, and that was like, you know, um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people in crypto might not even remember that, right? But the, um, but that downgrade, um, I started looking at gold, uh, the kind of US treasury ETF. And then uh, I learned about Bitcoin for the first time and I had the right thesis, but I, I think I had the only trade that could have lost money, which was I shorted the treasury ETF bought gold and ignored Bitcoin because I didn't really understand like how to acquire it and I wasn't I wasn't a developer. And counterintuitively, when S&P downgraded the US debt, everybody thought it was a shock to the system. And so they had a flight to safety and the flight to safety and flight to liquidity was the US dollar and the, yeah. and the US debt. So treasuries are going up. So, so the, the treasury ETF went like, you know, sh shot sky high, gold was like mat or slightly down. Um, and then, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, of course, you know, Bitcoin just skyrocketed. But um, fortunately, I came back to it in 2013. So still relatively early. Yeah, just a little thing on gold. I saw this amazing stat the other day. If 10 years ago, you'd put $100 into gold, today you'd have $102. And mm -hmm. if you put $100 into Bitcoin 10 years ago, you'd have something like $1.3 million. <laughs> that sounds like something from uh, my co-founder's Bitcoin site, Case Bitcoin. I'll pull it yeah. up right now. Yeah. Um, but once you finally got your head around the Bitcoin, what, what was it that appealed to you? What what was it an investment thesis? Was it the technology? How did how did you first kind of like come to understand it? For uh, for me, the. Um, you know, I, I still had like the digital gold thesis. Um, so when I, I bought my first, I, I bought it through. Um, Bought my first through CoinDesk or yeah, CoinDesk, Coin uh, Coinbase, um, like you know so many other people, and you know I just did it because I thought the thesis made sense and and that like um, general directional bet against the competence of the U.S. government was um, was still you know kind of core uh, and I, I I consider myself like a pragmatic libertarian, but I certainly spent like you know a bit of time kind of thinking about um, learning about like libertarian ethos and whatnot during that time period, but. Um, it was very much like digital gold and like the fixed supply element kind of made sense to me just as a, Hey, I'll put a little money in here and just kind of see what happens is just like one position in my portfolio. Um, and then it went up like six X in a few weeks. And at the time I was winding down my first startup. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm like 10 months before business school would start if I ended up going to business school. I blew through most of my savings certainly all my cash. And, and basically all I had was like my 401k and, and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever I'm going to do next, right. In terms of like career earnings. And, um, I ended up liquidating my 401k. I used half to buy more Bitcoin, the other half to pay rent and kind of figure out cost of living while, while I got bootstrapped, uh, and figured out what was next. And then ultimately, you know, started the newsletter, got to know everybody in short order, broke the Mt. Gox story, as you remember. And, um, uh, that got me, uh, in touch with everybody for, for better or for worse, uh, in the industry at the time and ended up joining DCG. And yeah, is that how you got to know Barry Silbert and then ended up at DCG? Yeah, that was my first, actually my first interaction with him, uh, uh, was through my newsletter. So, um, there was a, there was an insiders only, or like, you know, Bitcoin pros or like, you know, basically like the, the the top like Silicon Valley people uh, that were into Bitcoin. There was a private listserv back then, 
Um, cause the community is so small. You could literally have this like, you know, execs only group. And, um, I had written a few things on Reddit and Coindesk was just getting off the ground. So like people don't understand, like our Bitcoin was like the homepage for, for Bitcoin news. And, and I written a few threads there and I started this like, you know, Tumblr blog. It wasn't even medium at the time. It's Tumblr, uh, Tumblr blog. And, um, a couple of the guys in that, um, listserv started picking up on the daily email that I was sending through MailChimp and then kind of posting a Tumblr and, and you know, the crazy South Park avatar and the two bit idiot and everything. And, um, and, you know, some of those guys were like, you know, had passed links around the group. Like this, this guy's really smart. I don't know who he is, but like he, he wrote this thing on, you know, Coinbase's valuation and numbers. And it's, it's pretty, you know, some of them were Coinbase investors and they're like, yeah, actually the, the numbers that he's floating are not too far off the mark. Um, who is he? Like, how does he know this? Is he, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and that pseudonym lasted for, you know, six weeks or whatever. And then everybody know, like knew, you know, who, who was kind of behind it. But um, I got invited to that group. And then, you know, that was basically all the connections I needed to get my hands on the Malcox documents and um, uh, kind of meet it, meet the who's who there. But Barry had actually, he and I actually spoke before Malcox in like January because I was, uh, I was actually thinking about doing a stable coin. Ironically, with the person that ended up going to Circle and helping with USDC and is now part of the Boston Fed and one of the co-authors of the CBDC white paper. So like he and I actually talked about doing like a stable coin like way back in 2014. And, and yeah, we just had like a landing page and some like high level ideas for how it could work. But uh, I've spoken with Barry about that, you know, talking about like potential funding for it and, and whatnot. It was a, it was a quick call because you know we weren't we didn't have a company or anything. It was just an idea. But um, I think that was the first touch point, and then um, Gox and Polarity ensued, and yeah, you know, all the bit license stuff that summer. So you know, I was I was pretty active, even though I was independent and unaffiliated. What was the pitch that Barry kind of came to you with about what he wanted to do with Digital Currency Group? Um, it was, uh, it, I mean, honestly, it was kind of the other way around because I, um, I had basically, you know, tweeted uh, about Barry building like the early parts for like a, um, a Bitcoin Berkshire Hathaway. And, um, you know, I started to write about it because I knew all there wasn't that many companies. Right. So you, you could like figure out like who was doing what and, and kind of what the building blocks were. And, you know, he had, uh, I think he sent me like a DM or, or an email, a private message of some kind and, and was like, you're not too far off the mark. And I said, hey, we should get together, you know, uh, the next time I'm in New York because I was going to meet some other folks in New York. And um, he um, he and I ended up. Uh, catching up sometime in in July, and I was meeting with a couple of other companies. Um, you know, there was like five at the time. I was talking to all of them about you know uh, kind of full time jobs, and I went in and I met with him, and I knew that was probably the place that I could build the most because there was you know remember at the time it was second market like it was his old non Bitcoin company, so he was going to be dragging a bunch of folks from like that old business. And yeah, that's where he was, he was offering yeah. stock in companies that weren't public. Is that right? Yeah, that was, that was second market. Yeah. Right? Um, so, um, and then that ended up, you know, that, that business, you know, sold for, uh, you know, just a, a tiny bit to, to NASDAQ as, as kind of the rest of the, 
the really interesting assets kind of came into the fold of DCG. But um, yeah, I think um, I was with him for probably about five minutes uh, before he offered me a job. And, and you know, and, and, you know, most of the conversation was about, um, okay, here, here are the things that I think I'm good at. Here are the things that I want to do, like short, medium, long-term. And um, there's a few different ways that I could go and kind of be deployed if, if I ended up joining and, and, you know, more or less, like, I think I know what you want. You just, you want someone that knows this industry cold and is like, gonna gonna just like grind and build with you because there's not that many of us still yeah um and um and so you know it it, it was it was pretty 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 smooth it wasn't like a, a real big pitch and and um from kind of late 2014 through uh 2015 you know i i helped kind of lay the foundation with him did a bunch of the blocking and tackling and, you know, kind of behind the scenes work and seed investing, just kind of, you know, continuing to like clip those checks. Um, uh, we recruited uh, Melton, who's actually uh, a mutual friend from MIT that I got to know because I'd accepted my offer at MIT, but then remember I didn't go. So, you know, he had worked with me over the summer at my previous startup uh, that didn't pan out just as a volunteer because he wanted to be in this incubator. He, ended up, he ends up going to school, uh, starting the MIT Bitcoin Club, meets yeah. Melton, introduces me to Melton, and then she joins DCG. And, if, and so this, uh, I'm talking about Dan Elitzer, who then went to IDEO after he did the MIT Bitcoin Club and that whole experiment and airdrop. And uh, now he runs a, a company called Nason. So like, there's all these like interweaving. Yeah, small uh, world. Awesome stories, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, back then, for sure, Bitcoin was still a dirty word among a lot of people. What about it? made you not worry about its future what what did you what where did you get that confidence to just kind of dive into it and and, and want to build and, and create you know like build it out basically you know I don't I don't know that I had like religious confidence in Bitcoin success uh and, and crypto success in general I think um my feeling instead was if this works out, and I pissed away two years and a quarter million dollars on business school instead of like going full throttle. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to regret it because I'm not going to be. Uh, I will have lost two years to like much more talented people. It's kind of the way that I, I thought about it. Um, and I'd always rather have like an unfair edge that comes with like a network and and just being like a little bit earlier faster versus trying to be smarter or like outwork people. You know, like I, I work hard, don't get me wrong, but I would prefer to be slightly lazier and earlier, um, always. Uh, yeah. And um, and so- Well, it's back it, to doing your uh, your shift in two hours, right? If you can get that extra hour for fun. Exactly. And get paid for three hours, why not? There, there it is, there it is full circle, right? And, um, and so, you know, the other thing that was like a margin of safety was, okay, Andreessen's talking about this in the Wall Street Journal. Fred Wilson invested in Coinbase. You know, th there's like multiple ETF proposals. Like this is something that really, really smart people took speculative, like religious level bets on. When's this, of course, right? Like the Godfather. Um, and and so me, you know, at the time, 27, 28, however old I was, you know, that was not as risky um, with that kind of larger narrative in mind. Um, then it would have appeared at first glance. So it was one of those things where, okay, worst thing that happens is 
I, I have to get a real job and I have to, you know, figure it out or, you know, go sell real estate or cars or, you know, whatever, like I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, something that was really going to cripple me one way or the other. So then you went on to um, build out Coindesk for DCG and um, got that up and running. I'm curious, when did the idea for Masari come about? And, and what, I think what you did is, is you, you created a sort of one-stop shop for things that weren't necessarily maybe all in the, in the same place or help me understand like what that impetus was. Uh, so, Coindesk was a turnaround. Um, you know, it was it was nearly one of the um, bear market casualties in 2015. Um, but they'd done a successful single day conference in New York called Consensus, um, and I had recruited a team from Money 2020 to build a a big events franchise under the DCG umbrella as like our next business. And the pitch was we should like Coindesk is running out of money. It's going to be basically scrap metal in a matter of months, and there's not that many suitors for it. But if we had that business, could convince some of the core like editorial folks to stay, and then put it together with this professional events team and the budget to run like a larger scale event, that could be the engine for the business and the, and the turnaround like early on. And so uh, that's exactly what happened. So in um, we in, in the course of um, you know eighteen months, you know. Eight, seven or eight X revenue, um, got the business to profitability and, um, uh, you know, built the engine that, that now is consensus and, um, you know, Pete Rizzo, uh, who, you know, and, and, uh, and Stan, who's now we're over at, at the block. Um, those two held up the entire like crypto editorial ecosystem <laughs> single-handedly for like late 2015 and 2016. Yeah. Um, that, that, that was Coindesk. That was, that was basically it that everybody read. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they got it done. And then of course, you know, now it's a big edit desk and, and, you know, those two deserve, you know, all the credit. Um, I was just kind of pulling the strings behind the scene, making sure that the, the bills were paid and we got people in the door for the, the carnival. Yeah. And then what about Masari? Was that something that was bubbling in the back of your mind that you wanted to do and the time just came to, to, to go and try it? Um, Masari was a byproduct of um, the ICO boom when, you know, everything was basically going vertical and, and for the most part, these things were just white papers. So uh, my co-founder, Dan, I'd gotten to know previously, we'd invested in his, uh, his earlier startup at DCG. It was, uh, it was called uh, Digital Currency Council. I think it was, it was almost like investor accreditation for Bitcoin. And then they pivoted to something called Sabre. And Sabre was like an on-chain analytics, you know, for, for law enforcement, kind of like um, chain analysis or, or you know, something yeah. like that. Sure. And they pivoted again and they ended up like had some weird pivot where they basically got out of crypto and, and you know, were doing like Alexa installments and in hotels. Some like really like right turn. And, and Dan reached out and he's like, I'm really dying not being like full-time in crypto right now. Like, can you give me some feedback on this new site? And the new site was called OnChain FX. And that was basically the backbone for what became the Masari screener. So this was like the view one of that. Um, and I called him pretty much immediately right back. And I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what needs to exist. 
but we need like a better underlying, you know, open data library. We should do this, 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 and this. We'll need this, blah, blah. And uh, you know, I I was basically like talking as if we were already co-founders, and he was like, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a couple of years. Do you want to grab coffee before we, you know, uh, before we we go out and fundraise?" And um, uh, so we just started kind of catching up that whole whole fall, um, and originally thought about a holding company structure so that we could create a um, an activist fund for when everything inevitably just completely fell off a cliff. Um, and, and the thinking was, okay, if we can short these things or we can you know, accumulate big positions um, during the carnage, uh, then you know, we'll be able to restructure some of these or be like interesting assets or there'll be like cash from the ICOs that we'll be able to like play with, you know, yeah. almost like going back to the Apple example, right? right. That's what I was just going to say. Your experience there was really held you in good yeah. stead because everybody else was like, no, we're going to the moon. This thing's never going to crash, but you, you knew other otherwise. Yeah. And, and so, so the thinking was, okay, these aren't stocks, but if these tokens fall off a cliff and these teams have these massive cash balances, then ultimately, you know, could we be an activist that like redeploys that for actually interesting like you know, projects and 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 almost becomes like the uh, the Carl icon of of like crypto. Um, we ended up not doing that for two reasons. One was we had a long term mindset. We don't want to be like known as you know pariahs uh, of, of all these different founders. And um, and the second was there wasn't really any reliable data sources that you could short against, right? Because you know one bad short would blow up your entire life savings because things were going parabolic. Yeah. Um, so we instead, you know, kind of went back to the infrastructure side and said, you know, let's just invest in this analytics platform. And um, and then we ended up combining them in, in mid-2018 after we raised some money. Yeah. And I know you're also, you know, invested in coins, you're like, you know, and in and in the actual market, but I I, I find it fascinating to see these firms um, grow up sort of like alchemy today, where they're providing services to people who are like, you know, in the NFT space or what you're doing. Um, as a service for, for people who want to trade and understand the, the market better. It, it's kind of like Levi Strauss, you know, in the gold rush where they're like, you know, we're not going to go out and mine gold, but these guys need, you know, jeans and they need picks and shovels. And, and it's, it's always, it's a, it's a really fascinating cycle to, to see this unfold over the years um, where yeah. these services kind of like exchanges, you know, you have to have an exchange and the people who get in there tend to do very well. Um, so one of the things, um, just to get to jump ahead a little bit, uh, I, I really enjoyed your, uh, 2022 thesis, uh, paper. Uh, I won't claim I read every word, but I read a, a very good chunk of it. Um, and one thing I found really interesting, um, is, uh, your discussion about like a crypto dollar. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I just wanted to take a little aside here, like, so, um, for people who might not know, but like talking about the U.S. dollar, um, it was you know after World War II, the gold standard was adopted, where, where gold would back the U.S. dollar. Other countries around the world then pegged their currencies to the U.S. dollar, and could deposit gold in the U.S. to to get dollars. And so, it, it created this huge demand for for dollars around the world. Um, and so, yet um, you know the economy basically grew too fast to outpace the gold supply. So um, people started withdrawing their gold from the US, uh, the other countries and everything kind of fell apart in, in 1971 and they defaulted on that. 
And then what replaced it was uh, a rather kind of ingenious solution was the, the petrodollar where Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC countries were um, convinced to only sell oil in US dollars. So any country anywhere around the world um, had to buy in dollars. Uh, so that has been in place since the mid seventies. And now it, it's kind of fraying um, because uh, you know the dollar, it, it, they've just been printing like crazy and, and you've, you've written a lot about this. And I wondered if you could kind of just help real quickly, like what's your idea for this crypto dollar moving forward and, and how might that sort of keep the US dollar uh, as, a, as a sort of force in, in global markets? Um, so th there, there's a couple things here. Um, one of the reasons I've started to call these uh, crypto dollars is kind of like re retake the narrative of like <laughs> crypto, I think sounds scary to people. So if you're going to use it, I'd like rather use like Web3 as like a catch all term and like crypto dollars instead of stable coins. Um, because uh, likewise, Chair Gensler at the SEC is trying to like rebrand stable coins as stable value coins so that they sound more like stable value funds, which are securities. So like I like crypto dollars because I think it is a more appropriate catch-all term that is clearly um, uh, distinct from a central bank digital currency. Um, I think CBDCs are super dystopian um, and like we should be fighting against them tooth and nail, like knockout, like drag, uh, just drag out fight. And let me um, ask you real quick, is that because a central bank digital much more traceable than like US dollars in a bank account? Yeah, they're mass surveillance systems that give centralized authorities uh, finger on, on basically permissioning any transaction ever. And they would allow those same people to institute things like bail-ins or negative interest rates or you know outright seizures for tax purposes or whatever purposes. Um, you, know, you basically create a system where you can unplug people from the matrix, right? Um, and this is what's happening in China right now. It's being used as a um, just another tool in their arsenal to control the population and, and institute a social credit program. And if your identity and your behavior is tied to what the state wants you to do, uh, and that impacts your credit and the money that you can spend at the store, you know, I, I can't think of anything that's more coercive than that. Um, yeah. And, um, it, you know, interestingly enough, I can make the argument that 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 model would be even more dangerous in the US right now, right? The CCP, at least has a united front, and they they rule, you know, they have this like, you know, the, the mandate of heaven, right? Like as long as things are going well and the, and the and there's growth and the population is net getting better, there's not going to be you know, mass unrest. Um, and so their incentives, you could argue, are maybe better aligned than our current political incentives given out the Biden everything is. Yeah, so, so imagine a CBDC in the US that literally swings on a fucking pendulum every single election between like who's going to be threatened financially and who's not. Um, it's it's really dark. And so uh, I like crypto dollars because you build on the same open platforms, you retain the same individual autonomy, but realistically, every single person is probably going to default to going to a third-party custodian or some multi-signature arrangement. And anyone that's holding at least one key is probably going to have certain information requirements that give authorities the ability to look at transactions 
um, and subpoena individuals versus like just adding to the dragnet surveillance state, right? So I, I think that's a good balance. And, um, and ultimately I think there's, you know, crypto dollars basically embed actual American constitutional values uh, and rights versus what I think the federal government would like to do now, um, which is if you disagree with us and disagree with the truth, then you're basically a domestic terrorist. Do you see these coming from like um, commercial banks? Because I mean, before, you know, QE really ramped up, that's where the majority of money came from was, you know, through the issuance of debt and like me getting a mortgage, you know, that money didn't exist and now it does exist. Mm-hmm. That's kind of gotten thrown off by everything that the treasury is doing. But I guess I'm, where, where, do the, where do you feel like that dollar that would be a crypto dollar, where would it come from? I think these exist on a spectrum. Um, you'll have some that are essentially just digitized representations of dollars that are otherwise held in a bank. Um, and that's just a ledger record at the bank transmuted onto this digital ledger. Um, and then you know, some intermediary like Circle or, um, or Tether kind of intermediating like between the two. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of trust there. But on the other hand, you have um, uh, you know, debt-based crypto dollars like Maker um, or you know, Terra Luna. Um, that are you know, backed by some type of crypto collateral. Um, and that's exposed, you know, you have some exposure there to bank runs and like, you know, you could have like cascading liquidations or, you know, if there's a you know, big market shock and Maker actually survived one of these already um, in, in 2018 and, uh, and, and uh, 2020 actually in a, a pretty meaningful way. Um, so uh, I, I think there are other experiments um, on the stablecoin side. Um, you know, I was an early investor in, in Faye protocol. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about Joey as, as an entrepreneur and um, just the, the work that they're doing, thinking about like a relatively uh, thoughtful and iterative approach to like a fractional uh, dollar, but one that actually controls some liquidity and has some backstop. So it's not just um, kind of smoke and mirrors kind of backing the, uh, the, the asset itself. So there, there's a bunch of experiments in that space and they'll range from like fully decentralized or whatever that platonic ideal is, all the way to what I would say is like a dollar that's digitized from a, a bank account. I would separate CBDCs into a whole other dystopian category. Okay. It seems like we would need Congress to act on some of this stuff, do you think? Uh, I don't, I mean, they're gonna weigh in at some point. You know, these are, there's gonna be a combination of executive orders and there's gonna be, uh, you know, studies and uh, a, a lot of politicking around this in the next couple of years. I think um, even this week we had new developments. You know, there was a hearing and, and it seems like, um, you know, the Democrats themselves are split on whether stable coins should be regulated. Uh, as you know, banks and and you know how exactly the interface of the banking system. So you know, like this is evolving every day, and I think it's just a function of there is so much that policymakers need to catch up on, and there's only so many people that have bandwidth for this um, amidst like all the other political priorities or sideshows uh, that 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 are are kind of present day to day for them. So I don't think anyone is super optimistic that you're gonna see anything in the near term. Um, well, actually, I, I would 
I'd say there's a lot of people that are optimistic that you won't see anything in the short term because there's just gridlock and misunderstanding. And no news has historically been good news from the federal government. Um, it's better than bad policy, right? Like what we saw with the bit license um, or what you see from like overreach, like you know what, what uh, Chair Gensler has done at the SEC uh, more recently. Yeah, I think in my experience covering financial regulation for a while, there's always a lot of saber rattling and a lot of talk and, you know, it, it tends to get heated. But then I think at the end of the day, for the most part, uh, what ends up happening is pretty, pretty normal and, and pretty, you know, middle of the road kind of thing. Um, and I, I think crypto is going to be no different because it's such a big industry and it's just starting to get its voice. Um, but it'll, it'll be fascinating to see how that all plays out and whether, you know, a few Congress people or senators can actually like learn what this, you know, industry is about um, and, and hopefully lead their colleagues. Um, so if Congress is behind the ball here and isn't expected to do anything um, in the short term on crypto legislation, that's not the case at the SEC. Gary Gensler is the chairman right now. You've come out quite strongly against him and, and some of the moves he's making there, both on Twitter and in your 2022 thesis, where you called him a liar and a fraud. Can crypto work with the SEC with Gensler at the helm, in your opinion? Um, short answer is probably not. Um, you know, the longer answer is, is obviously a little bit more nuanced. Gensler is a political animal. This is not his first foray into the bureaucracy in DC. And I think to a certain extent, he's playing politics and hardball and trying to get as much authority and clarity for the SEC as he can, um, at least in part by floating his MIT credentials and the fact that he, he taught this subject so he must know what he's doing um, as being you know, one of the primary reasons that, uh, that the SEC should have purview here. And um, you know, I'm not sure if this is a case where the squeaky wheel gets the oil or, or this, the person who's the perceived expert, you know, gets uh, deferential treatment when it comes to the upcoming executive order that we're expecting from the Biden administration, whether that's going to be just more studies of how uh, crypto should be regulated or, or you know, understanding the policy um, consequences from regulation or, or lack thereof for, for crypto you know, remains to be seen. But I think um, one thing is clear, he's been lobbying pretty hard for authority behind the scenes um, over the spot crypto markets. Um, and this is really where um, the uh, crux of the issue lies is that um, while playing this game of hardball with the industry and, and basically claiming that um, things are more or less at a standstill from a regulatory clarity standpoint until um, exchanges come in and, and basically submit to the SEC's oversight. Um, it's having a lot of uh, completely predictable uh, negative consequences for you know, American investors and, and for the industry at large. So you know, going back to the points that I made in the, uh, in the annual report, um, there's a few things that are just kind of absurd on, on their face, right? So the first is, um, if 
uh, Gensler was actually pursuing the SEC's mandate to protect investors, ensure fair and efficient markets, and promote capital formation, which is you know, the, the third prong of their mandate that is almost always ignored. It, you know, the emphasis is always on the, the, the former two, particularly from the progressives, right? Protecting investors and, and making sure that there's fair and efficient markets. Um, but I think the SEC under his leadership is 0 for 3 when it comes to crypto, in particular, if you look at something like the Bitcoin ETF. Um, you know, Grayscale has been able to, to create um, what I think anyone, any rational investor or, or actor would look at as, as toxic vehicles right now for investors um, that could be fixed with some sort of cooperation or common sense on the part of the SEC. Um, not, let me just jump in. As I understand it, one of the main stumbling blocks there has always been their inability to guarantee that Bitcoin won't be manipulated somewhere in the world, you know, and that that manipulation would obviously affect the ETF price. And so there, I, and I, I feel like that's why they've gone the ETF route in the, in the futures market, because at least that's regulated here in the US. And if there's manipulation, there's infrastructure there to address it. Whereas the global spot Bitcoin market, there's nothing like that. What, what do you what do you think of that um, uh, reason that the SEC has given for for its past inaction on the ETF? Well, I mean, you can make an argument that OPEC uh, manipulates the spot oil price. I mean, that that is what price setting is, right? And and so um, you know, we have oils uh, oil futures uh, and, and oil futures ETFs. Um, you know. The futures are obviously regulated, and then the ETFs you know, can be can be based off of those. But um, you know, the the futures price is a uh, derivative of the underlying spot price. So you know, even though the futures are regulated, they're still derived from the underlying spot price. So I think that logic falls down pretty quickly. Number one, and number two, um, if you look at actual investor impact, is the concern uh, around uh, manipulation of the spot price at a point in time. Um, you know, you can make that argument with a straight face in an environment where the grayscale products, which represent you know forty billion dollars worth of investor capital, if they're trading somewhat close to par, because then you're trying to make sure that people are not getting defrauded at the margin based on some you know kind of manipulative action you know around the the timestamp price. But the reality is that the grayscale products are, are trading at you know 25% discounts. So um, you have these vehicles, they already trade um, via OTC markets and are accessible to you know, investors everywhere, but they're mispriced by 25% because of the SEC's inaction. Um, that is far, far more damaging to investors than marginal potential fraud, not even real fraud, just even potential fraud um, in the spot markets based on, on uh, based upon overseas activities. So I, I think it's, you know, it is a transparent load of crap. Um, and what Gensler is really trying to do, again, is, is trying to get um, the SEC to control oversight of the crypto spot markets through the U.S. exchanges like Coinbase, Crack. And Binance US, FTX US, Gemini, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, I think the um, that that's fine, right? Uh, that is their known strategy at this point. Um, and 
you know, the question is, um, you know, is that hard line good for investors? I think the answer is obviously not because you can just look at the raw numbers. Um, the only way that this is going to change is if he has political pressure from on high at the White House um, or um, some, you know, meaningful congressional oversight where they can hold his feet to the fire a bit more. Uh, otherwise, we're basically just playing a waiting game until he's mercifully done with his term. Yeah. And for listeners who don't know um, much about Gary Gensler, he comes from Goldman Sachs. Um, I believe he was hired by John Corzine in their Tokyo office way back in the day. So he's very familiar with Wall Street. He came to the CFTC um, after the financial crisis when the Dodd-Frank Act had been passed by Congress and had given the CFTC all this new authority to regulate the over-the-counter swaps market. Gensler kind of bulldozed through that. Um, he, coming from Wall Street, was not put off by any of the bankers coming in to complain about the new rules that he was making and basically had zero fucks to give um, about that. So, you know, he, he definitely, and, and like you said, he's shrewd and he knows Washington and um, he has had some success in, in regulating markets. And so when it comes to the SEC uh, now, and, and I, I can't imagine what he thinks about crypto people if he's not, a, you know, not like put off by Wall Street and the money that they have. But I do want to say like the SEC in my experience has never really done anything other than rulemaking through enforcement. I, I think this is still true that even under Dodd-Frank, they were given authority over parts of the credit default swap market where it's a single name security and they haven't written those rules yet. And, and Dodd-Frank was passed in I think 2010. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, I don't know if Gensler's gonna change that at all or, or it's it just the SEC just has always been like a dinosaur and, and lethargic and really unwilling to kind of step out from its very narrow band. So I, I don't know, I just wonder, it, it, yeah, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that and, and, and how to um, navigate. Because I mean, obviously as we, everybody knows, we need clarity here. It's, it's kind of ridiculous that this keeps going on and it's just, you have to wait for the next enforcement to see kind of to read the tea leaves of what the SEC is thinking. Yeah, I mean, um, the SEC was created in a bygone era when uh, the internet didn't exist, financial markets in the US were still maturing. We weren't in a globalized economy. Um, we didn't have nearly the same percentage of, of the workforce educated and, and kind of the, the information economy and financial services. Uh, financial services was not 25% of our GDP. Um, and, you know, you didn't have a bona fide new type of, of digital asset that um, really kind of blurred the lines between commodity, security, currency, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And, and so, um, you know, the SEC's, uh, I think, very existence and, and utility is, is up for debate. I, I you know, th this might... Um, sound revolutionary, but I, I think that um, there's nothing more regressive in, in the American um, investment ecosystem than the accredited investor rules um, that basically say only, you know, 10% of the wealthiest Americans can participate in, in a, a pretty wide subset of the, um, of the uh, investment economy. And if the other 90% do want to get exposure, then they have to basically do it 
through vehicles um, like their pension funds that are ultimately you know, paying the pension funds uh, managers themselves, and then uh, all of the kind of venture or hedge funds downstream that have you know indirect exposure um, to crypto, and you know they're paying two and twenty, right? So it's fees on fees um, for people to get indirect access to crypto, and if they want to go direct, um, the reality is that this has been the highest performing asset class in the last decade. Yes, it's been really volatile, but it's also um, had upward volatility that's that's led to significant wealth creation from people um, that otherwise wouldn't have had access to these same opportunities if we were talking about the private tech markets, right? So you look at Uber and Airbnb and Facebook and Google and all of these other major um, tech winners of the past you know, decade. And um, most of those uh, especially with those later um, foreign companies, most of the, the gains there accrued um, in the private markets versus the public markets, where um, the, the winners and the early employees were, were extremely limited. This changes that dynamic. Yeah. And your point about this being a new asset class, really, I, I feel that because, and I feel like that's why Congress really needs to get involved and write laws about this. Um, the financial world has been able to, you know, absorb other innovations like the creation of the ETF market or, you know, the creation of futures products on interest rates or treasury bonds, because, you know, that's all sort of already native to the system. But now we've got this entirely new asset class. It's completely digital. There's wallets. There's all this new technology, DeFi. I mean, it's really, I don't see how we can shoehorn that into, um, you know, the Securities Exchange Act or the Commodities Exchange Act. And that's why I really feel like it's incumbent on Congress to get involved there. Um, so just one last thing here is also those dynamics in Congress are kind of like what's, you know, the real roadblock here is um, in Congress, you've got like the Agriculture Committee who has oversight of the commodities markets and the CFTC. And then you've got the Banking Committee, which has oversight of over the SEC. And neither of those people on those committees in Congress want to give up their power. Um, and so, and they're in charge of that entirely. So, you know, it's like this huge ask to, um, to, to say to people in Congress, like, no, you've got to, you know, you've got to reduce your power or you've got to like play nice here. And it's just, I don't know, that's when I get a little dispirited about how the structure of all of this works and, and sort of just sort of the gridlock is kind of embedded into it. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for us right now, um, because if you ask 10 people in crypto whether uh, crypto would be better regulated by the CFTC or the SEC, um, I think nine, if not all 10, are going to say the CFTC. Um, so, you know, let's have that conversation and, and, and let's let that, you know, work itself out naturally. Um, but I think you know, under, um, under Chair Gensler's worldview, uh, crypto in its current form will not exist if he gets his way. Um, certainly won't exist in the US, right? Most, most tokens in his eyes are securities. Um, and if you try to push all these unique um, token structures onto a, you know, legacy tech and trading stack and basically require every single uh, developer change in a protocol to be disclosable and and uh, and and kind of for the approval 
of the SEC first before it's actually pushed live, everything will grind to a halt. And this, this is what happened um, with, uh, with a token called Props um, that uh, actually went through the Reg A plus registration process. Stacks had done something similar. And uh, eventually they found that their token was basically just unusable because of the, the requirements of the SEC um, yeah. from a, a notice perspective, from a, from a you know, registration perspective. Um, and above and beyond that, it doesn't even necessarily make sense that some of those assets would um, would have standing to you know, make certain disclosures on an ongoing basis. Um, that's really, I think, the, the, at the heart of what we're, we're talking about right now. And, and I think you know, Commissioner Peirce is, is maybe the only person that's on the right side of this in, in terms of thinking from first principles. How do we satisfy the um, SEC's obligation to the American public uh, and, and fulfill its kind of mandate and mission with respect to this new asset class? Um, without breaking any one of the three prongs of their mandate. Um, and right. something and like that's sort of where harbor. you get into the, yeah. her fair harbor suggestion. Yeah, right. the, the safe harbor that she's proposed, um, it does a better job of protecting investors because it creates some common sense. Can you just tell people what, what, is it, what is the safe harbor? What does that mean? Well, the safe harbor is basically just a three-year provision that any token project in the US that... Um, that worked with the SEC and, and provided uh, some rudimentary disclosures about their, their token design and their ecosystem and their, and their kind of come to market strategies would be exempt from securities filings and, and full registration for a three-year period, um, basically while that project gradually decentralized. Um, now there's some, uh, there's some nuance and some details here that I, I think are, are worth discussing, which is what is sufficiently decentralized or, you know, how, how, how would you actually, you know, graduate from that safe harbor. But if you look at the parameters of, of you know, what, um, what the safe harbor actually, you know, would do, it would, it would probably satisfy the most important um, challenge that we have which is um, insider transactions and like how those are tracked and, and, and how people can ensure that they're actually operating on the same playing field as the professional investors and the, um, and the, you know, the folks that actually create these protocols. Yeah, the um, cap table transparency is really kind of lacking right now. Um, back to the idea, just real quick about capital formation for retail. Why not? I, I, I'm assuming you're telling people just go get a wallet and buy buy coins on the spot market. But are are you then saying, yeah, that's great, but investors should also have access to products that are regulated and protected by you know government um, laws and and like FDIC type you know that kind of thing. Is that is that sort of your two prong approach? I think uh, yeah, I think ideally the CFTC would have um, oversight over. Any um, crypto asset, uh, we would have a safe harbor for those that you know created an asset and, and did something like a private token sale or, or a SAFT or, or you know one of these token warrant agreements. Um, and then uh, basically the things that would be left in the SEC's purview would be bona fide, you know, like synthetic securities or or like you know um, tokens representing interest in a company proper with cash flow and, and whatnot. And um, that could either be done on a you know, self-selecting basis, um, where you know the, the the folks building them know that they are like actual securities, but want to digitize them for whatever reason. Um, 
uh, or it would be done on a facts and circumstances you know, basis where you, know, you would actually um, prove uh, that you know, a certain type of, of your crypto asset um, was a security based on the facts and circumstances unique to that case. And, and then you know, basically you could triage all of those onto uh, something like a, an alternative, uh, alternative trading system. Yeah. Now, the irony is all the major crypto exchanges have ATSs. They've just been bogged down in red tape uh, and haven't been approved by the SEC. <laughs> There's nothing that would prevent someone like Coinbase, hypothetically, from having a CFTC regulated spot exchange for things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other assets that they deem are not securities. And then if they get guidance from the SEC, having the ATS related um, transactions, you know, kind of bucketed uh, under the same company, but under kind of, you know, two different interfaces, right? And you could, you could hop between them um, as, a, as an investor. And this, you know, we're talking about the US here, but I think an even more troubling example of, of regulatory overreaches in Canada right now, where um, the securities regulators in Ontario turned over tweets from Jesse Powell and um, uh, Brian Armstrong of Kraken and Coinbase respectively, where they were advocating for the use of a non-custodial wallet, you know, where, so that's a wallet that you control, you have the keys, those are your coins. And, you know, they, they turned over these tweets to the cops in, in Canada about, um, you know, like they're, they're accusing them of maybe trying to subvert uh, some local laws up there that are, are a huge overreach, in my opinion, about, you know, trying to help some of these truckers with, you know, cryptocurrency payments. And, and so, I mean, that, that's striking at the heart of sort of, of, of a cornerstone of, of cryptos, this, you know, your keys, your coins. Uh, and, and so what do you, what did you make of that? Um, you know, I, uh, I think the, the, the Canadian government, um, you know, regardless of what you think about the the, the convoy uh, itself, I think uh, it was definitely a strategic miscalculation. You started to see some withdrawals from like their banking system as a result. Um, I think they uh, probably had a permanent loss of trust for some subset of their population or their, their business partners in terms of um, how how solid is the rule of law or, or you know financial services uh, in Canada, and then you had the crypto component, which is, um, you know, people are now on notice that uh, their accounts can be frozen at any time and and in a in a kind of dragnet way versus um, going through like the proper channels and actually getting you know authorization on a per account basis. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's a bell that's not going to be unrung, and the question is, what does that mean for people actually doing self custody and, and owning their own you know, private keys, both in Canada and, and kind of elsewhere? People just like looking at that dynamic uh, and how quickly it played out. I think um, I think self custody in general is going to be the biggest battlefront for us in the next few years. Um, I would be, uh, frankly, I'd be surprised if. Uh, we don't face a crackdown on self-custody um, in the U.S. I think at a minimum, it's likely that anyone that withdraws from an account to a private wallet is going to have to fill out some, you know, attestation that they control the, the wallet that they're withdrawing to. 
it opens up a ton of questions about you know privacy tech and you know whether certain types of encryption are going to be you know uh, outlawed or 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 you know strongly uh, regulated and and you know effectively outlawed just through um, ambiguity in, in terms of like the, the letter of the law or the letter of regulations. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I think it, it should open some people's eyes to uh, the fact that you know, the, the government does care and does pay attention now. Um, and even if you're doing everything, you know, even if you're not participating in illegal activities, I think the, um, the government is much more likely to demand full transparency into all of your crypto transactions, whether or not they have the uh, statutory authority to do so. So I would actually expect um, one or multiple of these you know, cases to reach you know, the Supreme Courts of, of different jurisdictions. Um, and the question really boils down to, uh, is the government entitled to a full uh, accounting of your assets at any point in time? Um, because remember, we're not even necessarily talking about uh, dollars. Um, you know what, what we're what this is more analogous to is you know FDR's seizure of gold um, and forcing people to you know identify um, a specific type of asset that they hold, how much of it they hold, and you know what what the identification number is of that wallet, um, so that it can be tracked by the government. Yeah, and if if I wanted to shut down crypto. I would go right here to the, you know, the wallet issue. It is like, that is, I mean, you can't get more central to, to this whole new technology and why it's so revolutionary than that idea. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a couple of months now since your annual report uh, came out in December. Now we're almost into March. Um, anything to report? Like, how do you feel things are going from where you were then? Are you more optimistic, more pessimistic? Any, I know it's only a couple of months, but um, any updates on, on how that is all playing out? Um, I think, you know, I remain long-term optimistic about all the tech and everything that's being built on the infrastructure side. I'm probably um, slightly more pessimistic on where we stand from a regulatory uh, standpoint. I, that's not to say that everything has been um, has been negative on the policy front. In fact, I think there's actually been quite a bit of progress on the policy front uh, in the last six months. Um, I think politicians are aware that this is a, a swing voters issue and, and kind of a large, um, uh, pretty intolerant minority uh, amongst their their constituents when it comes to you know cracking down or, or kind of blocking the, the evolution of this industry. Um, but I think the decentralization of the industry um, is its greatest strength historically. It's also a weakness when it comes to um, advocating for certain policy positions. And we're going to have some real challenges uh, politically and, and, and from a regulatory standpoint um, from a, a variety of fronts, right? So with Bitcoin, we're going to have a pretty significant um, uh, Republican versus Democrat uh, issue, I think, where proof of work mining uh, is going to be, you know, in my opinion, incorrectly vilified and targeted by the ESG crowd on the left. 
And um, that's going to create some headwinds for you know Bitcoin. But obviously, Bitcoin is just one you know one asset. It's the, the most important asset, but it's one asset within the, the crypto ecosystem. Um, on the uh, you know many other assets, they're going to have to deal with the SEC, right? Um, are are these all unregistered securities offerings? You know how much deference is is you know, being given to you know the SEC? Um, across the board, we're going to have these, you know, privacy and, and kind of self-custody issues. Um, and those are uh, much more front and center now with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, Russia is going to be sanctioned. They're slowly getting cut out of the dollar system. Russia and China are already opening direct lines to denominate, you know, certain contracts in the digital yuan instead of the, the dollar. This happened just even like the, the last few hours. Um, that's going to happen more frequently. And, um, and we're going to learn, I think, as a country that um, there's limits to our, our power and, and, and there's kind of waning in, in you know, the, the U.S. dollar's you know, hegemony in, in financial yeah, services. That, that touches back on what we were talking about just earlier on the petrodollar system and how long yep. that can be in place because China is no longer buying treasuries. You know, they're working very uh, effectively in Africa to set up new, you know, um, trade partners and, and all sorts of things. So um, I just, you've sort of, I don't know if threatened is the right word, but you, you've said in the past that you might want to run for Congress and, and like, you know, show these guys, you know, like what's up on the crypto front. Is that, is that something you're serious about? Or was that more in the heat of the moment? Or how, how do you feel about getting involved here more directly as, as somebody in Congress, like in, in the House or in the Senate? Um. Well, I think ultimately uh, my goals have as large a political impact as possible with respect to an industry that is um, really under-resourced um, politically, you know, in, in the U.S. right now, I think. Um, and so there's there's a couple ways to do that. One is to, to run for office and win and kind of be part of that um, uh part of that caucus or, you know, part of that kind of leadership that, that's going to be driving things forward uh, from, from an actual policy standpoint. Um, and uh, the other is, is, you know, to be much more active in educating the whole body uh, of lawmakers and, and regulators and, and ultimately um, driving some accountability through the broader political process uh, in, in the form of, of, you know, more sweeping, you know, electoral wins. Um, and, you know, right now, you know, just personally, uh, you know, I wouldn't run for anything until 2024 anyway. I, I think I said as much, right? So th this cycle was never kind of on the table. Um, and uh, the, I'm obviously quite busy with my day job, right, uh, at, at running a, a fast-growing business. So um, the, the here and now, and I think the real opportunity is, in helping build the ground game and, and kind of the, the broader political effort for uh, many years to come. I think the thing that's been missing politically um, in DC, you know, we have the Blockchain Association does great work. They're a corporate you know, kind of member trade association focused on crypto policy. Coin Center does great work, they're a think tank. Um, there's a new uh, political action committee super PAC called GMI PAC that I invested in that that uh, Masari supported all three of those entities, you know, both I personally and, and as a company we've supported. Um, but there is a missing 
entity there. Um, and that's more of an activist oriented um, lobbying or, or advocacy organization, and then a, a, a grassroots oriented uh, political action committee. So this is like uh, in the US, the difference between soft money and hard money, right? So hard money pack, like grassroots donors and, and activation, I think is important. And then also on the, on the advocacy side, um, having a group that's going to be a little bit more user-centric, activist, and quite frankly, brass knuckles, um, I think is, is missing from the effort right now because it's tough for a corporate affiliated group working on behalf of exchanges to fight the fight for users um, directly versus indirectly, right? So, so you know, they, they will fight for users to the extent that it is in the best interest um, of, of their members, which are the corporates. And you know, the corporates are gonna try to do what's in the best interest of themselves first, their users second. So they'll, they'll fight because I think it's just in their self-interest to be um, very user-friendly um, to the extent that they possibly can, but they'll ultimately make concessions where you know, an individual-oriented entity might not, or might, might have a red line issue, or might initiate a court challenge or, or things like that. Um, Perfect example would be on like the, the individual custody front, right? Yeah. How much is um, a group backed by all of the major centralized custodians? How hard are they going to push and battle for the right to, you know, for users to have like their own like self Yeah, they, they want to have everybody have their stuff on exchange. Well, I don't even necessarily think that it's, they want all the assets on exchange. It's just that if that is their loss, they don't actually lose anything, right? So like on principle, they might think that this is unhealthy for the industry, that it's in the best interest to preserve this dynamic, but they're not necessarily like big losers in, in that scenario. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, I, I think one of the more positive and, and undersung developments um, the last couple of years has been Coinbase's emphasis on its own um, non-custodial wallet, which at first glance looks you know, a little bit out of um, uh, out of sync with the rest of their product suite, right? But the fact that they've been investing so much time and energy and, and, and resources into Coinbase Wallet um, makes me believe that actually, you know, they as like the 800 pound gorilla um, in, in the US are, are gonna have a pretty meaningful role in, you know, continue to advance um, the, uh, the interest of, of people that actually wanna hold their own keys. Yeah. Well, Ryan, this has been fantastic. Um, it's always great talking to you. Uh, there's a telescope in the background behind you, which I think is an apt metaphor because you're always looking far into the distance and um, doing great work for everybody in crypto. I, I really highly encourage everybody listening to go check out the annual report. It's free. It's on the Masari site, and I will link to it in the show notes. Um, and so, again, Ryan, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Hope you have a great day. Thanks, man. We'll do it again soon. Okay. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.